Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we are here today with Professor Dr. Sean Kalick. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Who is a professor in DMH, as well as being the DMH Master Instructor. Uh, So let's start by talking about your academic background. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you come from and what you study. Well, yeah, that's kind of a roundabout story, so this may take more than 15 minutes. Um, I actually started out as a political science major at the University of Denver. Uh, with the Cold War going hot and strong, right, and um, ended up graduating with a bachelor's in political science and international relations. Um, Ended up starting graduate school with the Corbell School at University of Denver, but quickly found out they didn't really like to do a whole lot of nuclear studies there. So I ended up moving to Southwest Missouri State, which is now Missouri State, uh, for defense strategic studies, thinking the Cold War was going to come back. Uh, I wrote a dissertation on uh, the strategic triad and how we should modernize it. This was like 92, 93. Um, I was interested in transnational organized crime and some other issues, but my professor at the time said, ah, they don't own nuclear weapons, they're not a threat, don't worry about it. Uh, So I ended up writing this dissertation that was hopelessly outdated by the time it was was finished, um, and then figured out uh, I should probably be more good towards history because the Cold War wasn't coming back. Um, so my fiance at the time agreed that I could get another degree. We were about to get married. She had a job, which was good. So I, I went to Youngstown State, which where she was teaching, and I ended up getting a master's in history, the specialization in European historiography, American historiography, and then American diplomatic history. And then I ended up getting a PhD at Kansas State in um, American history. So you suffered through both historiographies. Yes. I'm an odd breed in the fact that the political science background allows me to kind of play in Europe Mm -hmm. and with a kind of Russian specialty as well from about 1890 on, I'm equally comfortable kind of modern Europe and America as well. So, Okay, so uh, before we dive into some of the details, uh, in addition to the core NAOC that most of our instructors teach, what do you teach in terms of electives or other um, modularities? Yeah, uh, I've had quite a... Quite a run here at CGSC. I uh, started out teaching peace and stability operations because when I got here in 04, they didn't have any stuff on the Cold War. And they said, ah, oh, peace and stability operations since about 1945 is kind of like the Cold War, so just go ahead and take that. So I taught that for years until there was no interest anymore because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were winding down. Uh, so I built a Cold War class right now. Uh, after that, class kind of withered. Uh, I also teach um, evolution military thought since I think 2005, so I've been teaching that for quite some time, which is a Sam's requisite. So do that, do the Cold War class, and then occasionally I would delve back into American history and teach the uh, history for Homeland Security, which starts with the Constitution and balances constitutional rights and powers versus you know, citizens' rights and powers. So mm-hmm. that tension between national security and you know, what people are expected to have. Right, right, right. Uh, and I believe you're also involved in now both of our scholars' programs. True. Uh, the Art of War program, I, I lecture, I provide the initial lecture on military theory, and then I do the Cold War lectures on containment and then the evolution of nuclear strategy. And then last year I got involved in the international or the information uh, folks 
and I teach them their H400 block, which is kind of modern history since 45. Okay. And in addition, um, as I mentioned, you, you wear another hat, which is you are the department master instructor. So if you could, if you could walk us through uh, what, what all that involves. Yeah, the simple explanation is I have to help build curriculum. So I go lot, lots of meetings about terminal learning objectives and making sure everything is synchronized. And then I also heard 27 PhDs to make sure they're all teaching when they need to be teaching. Uh, I think it's the simplest way of doing it. I work with the director and deputy to make sure we are producing good curriculum that meets the Army's needs. And then I get to teach too, which is awesome. Okay, so you've got, you've got a pretty varied background, particularly compared to the, to the uh, typical uh, instructor on our hallway, which is pretty much a straight history PhD. So how do you blend all of your, you mentioned the, the political science kind of IR, strategic studies background, the curriculum design side into your teaching? Um, keep it at the macro level. I mean, right as I was getting into political science, there was a, a rift between, you know, the old kind of theoretical schools and the new quantitative methods. I, I veered away from the quantitative stuff simply because my math skills are less than, than desirable. Um, so from my perspective, the strategic ideas that you learn in IR and political relations and political science meld very well with history. Um, the historians don't always see it that way because political scientists are always looking for a model. Um, but if you keep it on kind of traditional theory, like, you know, realism, right, or Marxism, it fits really well with, with uh, I would argue, the, the history. So when, when I teach, I kind of try to keep it that level. I think I use a lot more of my strategic studies background melded with the history, so I think they complement one another really well. And I, I've, I've specifically seen you teach uh, Alpha 699, which is our Evolution of Military Thought course. Um, so how do those play together specifically in that course? Oh, they play together very well. I mean, I don't think I'd be as successful teaching it if I didn't have that background because if you just have the historical background and you don't know the theory, like how Thucydides is pitched in the realm of political science, which, you know, it's, it's a text about realism and it's a text about, you know, how nations get along, but the reality is there's a lot more historical context to it. So blending those two together can give you a fuller and deeper understanding of not just Thucydides, but also the other texts that you read, whether it's Marx, whether it's um, Mao, whether it's you know air power theory or Mahan. Mm -hmm. So they complement one another. Yeah, and so uh, shifting gears a little bit, a lot of the work you do is kind of early-ish Cold War. Um, and, and one of the things that I find fascinating about that period is we have a tendency to kind of think that the Cold War fell out of someone's head complete. And we knew who the sides were and what they believed and how they were going to engage in the conflict. But, but it was more of an evolutionary process. So, so how do you work with the idea that we don't ever quite know who's doing what or what people's goals are, as, a, as you mentioned, as kind of a realist approach? Um, by studying the Cold War, it's evolutionary, as you said. And in fact, one of the things that I think appeals to the Cold War is that a lot of folks think, as you said, it kind of emerged right in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, but yet if you look at the debate within the State Department from 1917 on about the Bolshevik Revolution and the emergence of this new kind of Marxist-Leninist ideology and how it doesn't really uh, get along well with capitalism, that there's forces within the U.S. State Department and the government that just, they don't even recognize the Bolshevik regime until, what, 33 with FDR. So you take a longer view of it, that it's, it is an evolutionary process, that who are they? Can they be brought into the normal fold of international relations, or can the Soviet Union, is it a pariah? 
but at the heart of it, there's just always, I would argue, an ideological conflict because Marxism doesn't isn't going to get along with capitalism except for those unique periods where they have to. Uh, but they see the demise of capitalism as the end state. So mm-hmm. I think pitching the Cold War as an evolutionary process, where you know sometimes you take two steps forward, you take one step back, uh, is a process that I think we we need to reemphasize and understand that it's not just jumping into it. That I think one of the most fascinating periods is probably 45 to 50. And the Truman administration and, and how they're really how Harry Truman is being very deliberate with choices and decisions about uh, whether to rebuild the military, what alliances to build, how to restructure the United States. And I'm always fascinated at how he's able to hold off significant partisan pressure, international pressure, uh, partisan pressure, and just slowly make decisions that in the long run ended up being the right decisions, but he just don't know that at the time because he's taking significant heat for being soft on communism. Yeah, and for a long time, historians have kind of ranked Truman as one of the also-rans of the presidents, and I, I think we're kind of now reevaluating that. Yeah, he, he leaves office, and he's looked at as one, probably one of the worst sophists in U.S. history. Uh, about the 70s, he's, he's kind of reinterpreted as, well, maybe this guy actually knew what he was doing, that he wasn't just some failed haberdasher from, you know, Independence, Missouri. The product of a political machine. Right, right, who was just a you know, figurehead. But the reality is, uh, as I've delved into the archive, that he, he has a very good sense of being able to kind of understand the predicament. He's a fiscal conservative, doesn't want to bankrupt the United States, sees that there's a, an ideological force out there that needs to be combated. We have to stay engaged, but also is slowly and prudently trying to assess what is the best path for the United States. But he's also aided by folks like George Kennan, Paul Nitza, George Marshall, who understand that you have to stay engaged and, and essentially maintain the architecture of the Cold War, or from World War II to the Cold War and um, set up for a long fight, a long ideological fight. You bring up something interesting, too, when you mention archives, because we're kind of uniquely situated to do that kind of research, being proximate to both the uh, Eisenhower and the Truman Libraries, as well as all of the NARA records in Kansas City. So so how has it been helpful for you to be here in that Oh, regard? it's fantastic, because Truman's a half hour away. Eisenhower's two and a half hours away, so I can spend lots of time in those archives. So it's they're both phenomenal. I've worked in both of them extensively. Um, so it's not a bad place to be. I didn't expect to end up here, but it's a good accident, by the way. Sometimes it works out, right? <laughs> True. So let's uh, shift gears and talk about a couple of the hobbies that you like to talk about um, in the hallway, uh, which are skiing and sailing. So, so <laughs> yep. how did you get in into Missouri and Kansas? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, we'll start with the skiing first. Uh, I never skied until I went to undergrad at University of Denver, and. Um, University of Denver has a winter carnival where the whole school kind of takes off and goes to the mountains for a few days. So I learned to ski with a bunch of friends who had, had grown up skiing. So quite literally, it was a steep learning curve. Um, <laughs> so I was thrown on skis. They put me in ski school one day with a bunch of five-year-olds, which was kind of comical because I was like 20. And then the next day, they were like, hey, let's just go to the top of the mountain. And we went to the Copper Mountain, and uh, I learned to ski by falling. As you sometimes do. As you do. And now, you know, it's just... Yeah, awesome. The other one, sailing, is one that I fell into in a different way in many ways. That I, I grew up spending summers in California, despite the fact that I'm from Northeast Ohio. So I grew up surfing. I'm a huge fan of the ocean. Um, not a whole lot of surfing in the Midwest. Not so much. Um, and my wife and I were on our honeymoon in Steamboat, Colorado, and um, I gave her the option of we could either go on a hot air balloon ride or a sunset sail. And she picked sunset sail, which was fine. And then we paid the guy some extra money for a sailing lesson, and we both got kind of hooked. And then when we ended up in Kansas with our first um, 
income tax refund check. We bought a little sailboat and have been sailing and racing boats ever since. So, and, and the the obvious question is one you brought up earlier. Um, how do you sail at what is probably the furthest you can get from an ocean or large oh, lake? Awesome lakes in in Kansas and great wind all the time. So, the only difference is the water's brown, not blue. But you know, small <laughs> small price to pay for mm-hmm. you know keeping my sanity. No, that's a that's a fair point. So it's a question we sometimes ask our, our guests. Uh, if you had to pick, what would you say is your favorite story from history? Favorite story from history? I know there's so many, right? Which makes us historians, right? There's not just one. Um, I'm always a big fan of, of NSC 68. And if you read NSC 68, specifically the courses of action at the end, that there's three throwaway courses of action and one kind of only real course of action, which is kind of accept this document as is. So I always like telling that story because you have the best minds in America working on a significant grand strategy, and the best they could come up with is three throwaway courses of action, and then you know just take our word for it. This is the way to go. Right. Which right, is right. just, you, as you study strategy and grand strategy, you would think it, it evolves in a much more academic, intellectual way. But then it comes down to, no, no, we got to make the boss make this decision. So just, you know, give them some distractions. But the reality is, NSC 68 is the only way to go. So that's always been a favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah. So final question. And, and for people who see you, they'll know right away that you're, you're the man wearing the bow tie. So um, and, Yeah. <laughs> Why the bow tie? Um, it, it's more comfortable. Um, and it's just different. Um, yeah. It's more comfortable and different, so yep. why not? I, I, I actually still wear long ties, mm-hmm. just few and far between, that's all. Yeah, fair enough. That's a, a true child of the 90s. Yeah, or the 80s, right? Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because students are like, sir, the bow tie is so intimidating. And I'm like, it's a bow tie. How, how can a bow tie be intimidating? So, I don't know, maybe I do it just for effect. I don't know. There you go, whatever works, right? Exactly. Whatever keeps them off guard, right? All right, Dr. Caleb, thank you for being with us today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.